everybody. It's Pete Fenzel here. Thanks so much for joining us. We're a little bit behind schedule, ran into some technical difficulties. A lot of them are my fault. Uh, but you know what? We're here. It's Monday. It's a holiday, but we're doing it anyway. We're, we're doing it live, too, here, streaming live on Google Hangouts. Thanks so much for joining. If what you usually listen to us do on Monday nights is recap Game of Thrones, you should keep doing that. It's a wonderful thing to spend your time on. We certainly love doing it. But there is no Game of Thrones this week. So instead, we are doing the one thing that people have been asking us since we canceled our Mad Men recaps, which is to do more Mad Men recaps. We are doing a full-on recap of all of Mad Men Season 7, particularly focusing on the finale of episode Waterloo, which aired on Sunday on AMC. And I'm, I'm really excited. I'm glad that there was some pent-up demand for Mad Men. Uh, the numbers hadn't really borne out that Mad Men was really pulling in overthinking it viewers. But now that we have the opportunity, we're glad to talk about the show we love with people out there uh, who also love it. Now, if you're watching live, we are watching our Twitter live at Overthinking It. So please, any questions, topics of conversation you want us to cover, hit us up on the Twitter and we'll hit it live. And if you're getting this TV recap on the Overthinking It TV recap podcast, if you love Mad Men and you've watched it, great, awesome. Probably won't be more Mad Men this season, but we'll pick up in the second half of the season, maybe even doing a more regular recap series when it comes back next year, if there's enough demand for it. All right, great, yeah. Uh, so, without further ado, we got a special panel of uh, uh, two mad men and one mad woman here today. Uh, of course, in true mad men style, we have, uh, we have totally conquered any gender political problems and we all treat each other as equals. So, um, excellent. So uh, without further ado, I'll introduce in alphabetical order first, Shana Malowski. How are you doing, Shana? I'm doing well, Pete. How are you doing? Doing great. I'm doing great. You excited to? Did you? How would you think? What's your first impression of, or not your first impression, your major impression of this half season of Mad Men? Um, it went from kind of lowish to pretty highish. Um, I, I don't know. I was. Uh, we were talking on the forums a while back about how the beginning of the season was sort of stuck in limbo. Um, and I know that was by design, obviously. Um, you know. Uh, I said on Twitter yesterday that everything this season has been up in the air because airplanes and things. Um, so at the beginning of the season, it was sort of, I don't want to say rough going, but it was hard to know where the show stood. Um, but in the last few episodes, it did seem to have a trajectory. So now I'm feeling good about the next half season. What do you guys think? Oh, that's great. Well, let's ask John Parrish. Hey, John, how's it going? And what do you think of Mad Men Season 7? What up? I I don't know. I'm if I say that my take is the opposite of Shana's, I want to make clear that it's not just to create artificial controversy for the sake of making a, a productive roundtable discussion. Trial by combat. Ooh, trial by combat. But I yeah, I will say I think my take is slightly opposite in that I had a better sense of where the show was going earlier in the season. They started to lose me a little around the time that uh, you know, around the time that Ginsburg had his his psychotic break, and I was then say time. yes, woo, around that time, and then by this episode, I mean I really enjoyed the episode. It it really developed the characters in a in a great way and was really true to the themes of the series and the season in particular. But I have a hard time seeing where they're going to go with it. In that, I don't see the impending dilemma that they will have to then dig themselves out of. I don't see the I don't see the problems ahead of them. Like this the series, the entire series could plausibly end here and it'd be like, uh, okay, you know, 
enough characters have made progress. Some some people are still unhappy, but I think that would be true regardless of where the show decided to end the narrative. So, nah. Like I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure what the dramatic unsolved question is that needs to be resolved in the remaining half season. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's reasonable. I, I I feel like I I get where you're both coming from. Emotionally, I'm more on Shayna's end because I liked the end of the season better than the beginning of the season. But as you talk, John, uh, I totally get that whatever it was that was building up in the middle of the season didn't necessarily seem to find its momentum and conclusion at the end of the season. There's a conclusion at the end of the season, but I'm not so certain that it's the conclusion to everything that was happening previously. Um, And I guess where it leaves us, they could do any number of things. um, But I mean, that's a good question. Where where would we leave it? So um, I want to, I want to ask a little bit about that middle area, like sort of pre nipple, right? So like, like pre nipple, um, what did it seem like the season was about? Uh, I mean, just off the top of my head, I'll, I'll start with something more specific. Uh, one of the big issues of the season, for good and for ill, is that Don and Peggy both spend a lot of the season being pathetic and unlikable and difficult to watch. Uh, and, and I think that um, now that is not necessarily a bad thing because, you know, this is a show for adults, so you should be able to tolerate such things. But Don was not his usual self, uh, having been transformed by the events of last season and being somewhat... Uh, trying to sort of reestablish himself. And Peggy wasn't her usual self. She was kind of meaner, more alienated, uh, a bunch of that other stuff. And that really seemed to affect the arc of the show considerably. I mean, did you guys have the same sense for those two characters, or did you see it differently? Oh, that sounds about right to me. Um, I think that last season uh, ended on a note of sort of like there was going to be a change finally, Um but at the beginning, Don really didn't know how to deal with this change. It was very one step forward, one step back um, with him trying to deal with his alcoholism. But then he's drinking again, you know, back and forth, back and forth. So, yeah, I'm I'm on the same page here. So it was nice to see the last couple of episodes of them actually moving forward, I think. Um, yeah, and maybe in the second half season they will continue to move forward. But who knows with the show? Yeah, uh, John, I mean, do you have a particular take on uh, where, where did you see, if not from that issue with, with uh, Peggy and Don, where did you see the dramatic action of the seer of the season in the part where you liked it? <laughs> in the in the part that I like. Well, I mean, to be, uh, I, I should caveat that I liked, I liked the entire season. Like, when I, when I talk about different areas that I connect or don't connect to, it's within very fine degrees of loved versus merely really enjoyed. But, uh, to give to give a little more detail, I I liked the overarching narrative of you know in previous seasons we've looked at how the characters are going to react and change themselves in the face of you know a maturing and in some ways radicalizing culture. This season was really this season there was a more strong arc of how the agency itself is going to change and not just how the people in it. The the biggest element of that conflict being, you know, the computer, the literal, you know, the literal super processing supercomputer in the center of the office and Harry's desire to have a computer, Cutler's desire to redefine the agency around the computer. Uh, what the increasing prominence of both Harry and the computer and overall the media department mean to the role of the agency itself. Uh, 
to the extent that people to the extent that people have grappled with that question of not just who am I and where am I in relation to the world around me, but where is this miniature world in relation to the world around it? Where is the agency in relation to the world? That, I think, has been the most interesting dramatic question to tackle, and the characters who have engaged with it have had the most interesting and productive stories, with perhaps the exception of Ginsburg. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. So, okay, so you talking about that makes me think of a particular sort of parallel, right? So we have a big com- – we have there are two big computers uh, that matter, I think, in the season. One is the computer that is put in the agency, and the other is the computer that uh, – the moon landing, right? The computer technology behind the moon landing uh, that happens. And and both computers change everything, right? They're highly disruptive. They're about the rise of technology and they change the way that people relate to each other. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of uh, a bit of a reversal in tension here because one of the things that, that the Harry Crane's computer does is it replaces the creative break room. It takes away the place that the people have to connect, right, with each other. Right, the mm-hmm. people who are creative people. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of viewing the agency creative table as the, as the table, the Burger Shack family di- supper table, or at least as the need that is gone, right, the, or the need that emerges uh, that the Burger Shack table is seeking to satisfy through purchase, right? This idea that um, people have become disconnected, mm-hmm. uh, and and and. On one end, technology has been a major contributor to that disconnect by supplanting the ways in which people work together with each other directly with ways that people work together indirectly through you know, intermediaries and, and also uh, how specialists kind of take over jobs that had previously been done by groups of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then in the, but in the moon landing case, we see this idea that this monument, this monumental achievement of technology is something that has brought people together and connected them with each other. Um, and and I can't and I can't help but separate it from the irony of the of the burger the the ending shot of last episode at the Burger Chef, uh, right where uh, where Don and and Pete and Peggy are all eating burgers together, and there's the sort of silhouette of a house, and there's this idea that this is kind of a cheap imitation of the thing that they wanted, but it's kind of enough of what they wanted also, right? Yeah. There's sort of like there's a way in which the show kind of makes fun of you for wanting the things that you want and then it also makes fun of you for accepting a an obvious sort of bait and switch for the thing that you think that you want. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. So, I mean, does that do those connections speak to anything? Like what's what's the deal with the computer and what's the deal with the moon landing in terms of like driving people apart and driving people together? Well, I think in this episode what I um really latched on to was uh, Peggy's final pitch and specifically what happened right before it which was um, you had this um, scene that was very reminiscent of that one scene in 2001 where you see people talking but you can't hear what they're saying and that scene had already been referenced um, right before Ginsburg had his break and he saw um, Cutler and who was it Lou um, talking um, about breaking the company apart, basically, and, um, you know, throwing people out. Um, so, so in the first case with Ginsburg, you have this computer room, this reference to a movie where computers kill everyone, and it is in the context of people being uh, ripped apart, people being fired. But then in this uh, finale that we saw, it's used in a different way where um, Peggy is looking at these people who are talking across the table from her, um, and she sort of gives 
Don this little smile like I got this I can deal with these people I can actually make the connection um, which is exactly what she does right there by referencing technology because the first thing she says is um, last night we all came together around this piece of technology the mass media television to watch um, this triumph of technology the moon landing and this has brought us all together at the same time, she then says that television also uh, disconnects us, uh, and that's why we need to go to places like Burger Chef where there isn't a television on. So it's this interesting push-pull. Um, I mean, the season was all about the generation gap, and I think um, part of the gap is between um, the newer generation that is big on mass media, on technology, um, not necessarily uh, with their... Uh, family of origin, but maybe making other families like a hippie family, like that commune that Margaret went to, that sort of thing, um, versus the old guard, um, which is sort of skeptical of it. So I'm not sure that the show really came down on either side, like technology good, technology bad, um, but just uh, is dealing with the complexities of it all, if that works for you guys. Yeah, it's, it's very much a season about, and the series has very much been about the the substitutes that Americans or that the Western culture makes in place for things that they traditionally thought they understood, like love or belonging or family. Uh, I mean, there's the there's the speech that uh, there's the speech that Don gives to Peggy when he's uh, at the end of season three when he's trying to convince her to come on to the newly formed Sterling Cooper Draper Price, which is uh, I'm I'm gonna have to paraphrase it because I don't have it off the top of my head, but you know the idea that you know, people used to, you know, people used to believe in things and, you know, he wants her to come with him to help make messages that will, that will sell that, that will get people to believe in things again. That's what's, that's what's important to Dom, that he can convince people to believe in things. And, you know, we, we talk about these, these substitutes for, as you say, for family, like uh, Margaret's hippie commune, or these substitutes for connection or for conversation. Uh, the recurring image we had in uh, in this season was the uh, teleconference, the telephone conversation, where there's it was done to humorous effect in one of the earlier episodes, where <clears throat> the LA office thinks they're connected to the New York office, but they're talking just they're just talking to an empty room. No one can hear them, uh, and this goes back and forth a couple of times. Or when someone thinks they're talking to someone on the phone and they're able to hang up, and they and they just hang up and keep talking as Roger does to to Pete to humorous effect. Uh, the idea is that the agency believes that they can operate bicoastally and still function as the same coherent, family, tight, creative unit that they did when they were all in the same office. Like, oh, okay, we don't all need to be in the same, you know, floor of the time life building. We have these, you know, we have these little speaker phones on our desks. We can just connect through that, you know, with occasional, like, daily or weekly conference calls. We'll have the same the same functionality, just being on different ends of the continent, when as it turns out, that's not actually the case. They, there's a tremendous disconnect. Pete feels cut out of the New York politics. Ted Shaw feels like he's been, you know, cast to some desert island and is just completely depressed, like suicidally depressed, because he's, he's cut out of New York. Uh, you, you can't you can't substitute the closeness of being around people every day and working with them through any number of technological supplants, even if you think you can. Right, and but of course it isn't that simple because everybody goes to their far-flung places for good reasons. 
Um, you know, so yes. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's 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 a quite it's a case of wanting it both ways. Like you you want to live in L.A. because it's warm, but you also want to do the powerful creative work that's happening in New York. Uh, you can't just retreat to Los Angeles. You can't retreat and lock it away and or. Actually, let me phrase it this way. Los Angeles might work for some of these people if they could retreat and never have to go back to New York. But the fact that they have to commute there and coordinate with people there regularly is what's keeping them from fully setting foot into Shangri-La. Right. Interesting. Um, so, so thinking thinking about that, the disconnects there. One thing I thought that was interesting about this season is it seemed uh, much less concerned with origins. And the previous seasons, I think in the previous seasons, when we're finding the substitute for the thing, there's also this very problematic relationship with the thing that is replaced, that we replace a thing, we replace a thing, we replace a thing. And then sort of way back at the beginning, there's some sort of original sin or some sort of circumstance that makes the thing that we would like to think is the stable beginning that, that can kind of, you know, give parentage to all these other circumstances that thing is somehow broken or flawed right whether it's uh you know pete campbell's marriage or his relationship with his parents or it's don's mistake you know is don's false identity and his experience with the korean war right like peggy's abortion right like or so she gave the kid up for adopt no she got an abortion or she gave the kid up for adoption gave him up for adoption gave him up for adoption right um sorry i was just uh, scratching an edge but yeah so like there's all these things that people go through that then, like, these things sort of loom behind them as they're coming up with the substitute of the substitute of the substitute. It seems like we're so deep into the substitutes at this point that the origins have sort of stopped mattering, right? Like, um, like the fact that they're willing to go back to McCann shows that they've really uh, lost a lot of their historical memory, right? Like, because um, that was what they were trying. That was, like, the whole goal of season three, right, was to, like, not be part of McCann. Well, the right? goal of the, se- of the season finale. Of the season finale, three, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, mean, I don't know. Go ahead. Yes and no. I, I definitely see what you're saying. Um, but then I think about the replacements um, are so on the nose that you have to think of what they're replacing. Like, when you look at Peggy's relationship with Julio and that he is, um, I guess, not much older than the age her son would be um, now, like, you have to say, okay, there's some something there like maybe Peggy isn't thinking about it consciously but she did uh, have that long conversation with Don about how she looked into other people's cars and saw the family that she didn't have and she you know she missed it Um, so I think it goes back to what you were saying John about um, how people just need to uh, sort of stay in one place and then they can get into their heaven they're not in this limbo like Peggy just needs to stop yearning for what she lost and just uh, say, I'm actually in a really good situation now. She's not the or anything, but she's making a ton of money. She has, you know, she owns a whole building. um, And she's doing reasonably well in a pre-feminist, you know, situation. So if she would just, um, you know, stop... I don't want to say stop caring, but stop looking at what she doesn't have and start focusing on what she does have. She, I think she, she would be much happier. But she still is, um, you know, she still has these replacements that harken back to what she's lost. Like there are the, the shadows are still there a little bit. I think. True, and the challenge is, it's easy for us in the 21st century to look back 
at where Peggy Olson is in the year 1969 and say, oh, you've come, you've come so amazingly far. You're so much farther ahead than most of the, than most of your peers, than most of the, the, most of the women in your circle. Like, you don't know how good you have it. It's easy for us to say that because we know the full scope of 1960 through uh, 19, you know, 1999 all the way into our current century. So we see wh how much progress it is. Peggy can't see that because, of course, she's in that moment. She's living in that in that actual moment as it exists. And Peggy couldn't have made it as far as she had, or rather, you know, the, the fictional character couldn't plausibly have made it as far as she had if she weren't uh, incredibly driven. And so it's it's this being incredibly driven that makes her want to keep keep striving even past a point where most of us would say no this is this is really good for a woman in in 1969 New York in the advertising industry like you should you should be proud of what you've done even if you feel you still have farther to go. So it's easy, it's easy for us to say hard for her to because she doesn't have that perspective. Yeah, it's interesting to contrast Peggy's arc for the season with Jones. Uh, right, because Peggy, you're right. I mean, Shane, you guys are right um, about Peggy finding substitutes for the things that she lost, but also not really being happy uh, and wanting to push forward and have more. And then we have Joan, on the other hand, who uh, is developing entirely new, entirely new professional skills, right? Like new professional ambitions, expanding her professional ambitions. Whereas Peggy feels like she's stuck. Joan is moving forward. And where Peggy is kind of finding relationships to replace the old ones, Joan is turning, turns down Bob Benson's marriage proposal, right? Sort of turns down this idea of having a replacement faux husband to replace her previous faux husband, <laughs> uh, who was not much of a husband uh, either and did not particularly love her. I mean, yeah, what do you... did, did he die in Nam? Can we just say he died in Nam? We're never going to see him again. Let's, let's kill him. Let's, he's yeah. like, it's, it's, we it's, did it. <laughs> it's official. Dr. Greg died in Nam. Okay, cool. Moving on. Fair enough. Uh, but yeah, but like, so what do you guys think of Jones? Jones arc also sort of I mean, if it isn't for the fact is it, if it isn't for like how happy she is to make the money involved in the McCann transaction, it seems like a lot of her story wraps up fairly early in the season. Uh, I mean, what did you guys think of Joan, Joan's arc through this, this, uh, this I think season, the moment, this episode? I think the moment with Bob Benson was really the climax of her arc for this season because in the past, I mean, she didn't really want to, but it just kept happening over and over again that she was that stereotype of the woman who got ahead by sleeping with people. Um, and she felt really horrible about this, but, you know, she became a partner because she was sort of pimped out. Right, situation where Bob was like, you know, uh, you can be that to me, like you can not sleep with me, but your relationship with me will get you places, and it'll get me places too. But she's like, no, I'm not doing that anymore. I have my own life, and I want love for myself. I don't want to make uh, like this fake family. Um, so I think, yeah, I think Joan's arc ended, what was that, last episode or the week before? Um, I, I wouldn't say it was at the beginning of the season, but more towards the middle. But I think she's doing okay. She did seem very angry this episode, too. I mean, throughout the season, she seemed pretty angry. And, you know, justifiably so. Um, I think that this was a pretty angry season, actually, when we look back at it. There were a lot of bitter characters floating around right there. <laughs> Well, office politics will do that, but uh, but yes, it. She has been, I mean, she has been angry at Don Draper and all the nonsense that surrounds and evolves from Don Draper, and with with good cause because now as a vested partner in the firm, 
it's his shenanigans that that stand to well as she very explicitly put in this last episode I'm sick of him costing me money which is is the most I'd say is the most coldly rational response to Don Draper that any character in the show could be expected to have at this point. Like, yeah, I recognize he's a genius, but he's he's a liability as well. So what do we do with him? And once it turns out that having Don on board will in fact make her money and that it makes the McCann offer, you know, much more plausible, she's she's fine with him being around. Her her reaction to him is utilitarian, which is perfectly plausible given the given the history they have. It is interesting how money uh, be is, is the role of money this season, because um, so much of the politics of Mad Men has aligned the money with the way that people feel about people and things, right? And and uh, um, yeah, I think back about uh, Lane's financial issues, which caused his suicide, right? Like it wasn't really possible to separate the motivation of money from what Lane was doing, right? To uh, to the, the, his personal issues, his relationship with his wife, all this other stuff. But a partner of an advertising firm making a decision that's going to make you know them a million dollars, uh, right? Uh, which when if they don't have the million dollars, they're still going to be fine. But then they're going to have a million dollars, and that fundamentally affects the way that they think about somebody. Like that feels different. That feels different than the way that we've looked at money in the past in this in this uh, in this show. Uh, maybe maybe it's just Joan was such a sentimental favorite. Yeah, go ahead, John. I don't know that that... I feel like there's been less of a focus on money this season with the, with the possible exception of this past episode. And even then, I think the dollar values involved were only, were only there as a motive, almost as a MacGuffin. Like, if, you know, if it were some larger or smaller sum of money, it would, uh, you know, it might make a slight difference, but otherwise the fact is it's... It's a notion of either we get rid of Don and continue struggling on as best we can, or we keep Don and keep Ted, and we stand to make significant amounts of money. Uh, like, the, the dollar value in, in particular doesn't matter so long as the answer is significant. Whereas the, the a series arc, where which ends with, with Lane Price uh, hanging himself, was very much about money. It was very much about specific accounting in that, you know, if the firm was able to take in certain amounts of dollars at certain periods of time, Lane's shifty accounting would not have been caught. Once it was clear that that couldn't possibly happen, he knew that his shifty accounting would eventually be discovered. And then, you know, he, he saw that path as inevitable. So, uh, I f and we've also had, <clears throat> we've had prior seasons where, you know, the specifics of, of Don's, I guess Don's contract even sort of falls into this into this category where you know Don accepts an increase in salary, but he insists on not being held to contract. And then all of a sudden, when he gets to the point where he has to be signed to a contract, it you know, money becomes much more money is much more of a motive then. It's much more of a tool. I felt it was less of a tool here. Like everyone, like the money being tossed around seems to be sufficient. Like Lou is able to offer Peggy a very generous raise, pretty much on the spur of the moment as a tool to sort of get her to take Don under her, not under her wing, but like under her supervision. So it doesn't feel, <clears throat> it doesn't feel like anyone's really lacking for money this season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting to think about, to think about the money as this MacGuffin. If the money really doesn't matter as much, uh, it, it's interesting to think about the money in relation to Pete Campbell, right? Because Pete Campbell is so happy to have that money 
right? That happens at the at the end of the of the season. It was like, oh wow, you know, we're gonna make like six million dollars or whatever. Well, I, I I think he's more happy to have twice as much as Joan has because I think that's very specifically the terms he uses. Like, you know, she says, you know, su- such and such five percent shares, and and she's almost giggling. Within Pete, almost also giggling, says, and I have twice as much. Yeah. I guess I I think those are literally his words. So, I mean. Pete comes from money. I don't think. I don't think like. An, I mean, obviously, no one's going to turn down a million dollars in the bank. But like he, I, I don't know. I don't feel like that's as big of a motivator for him. Well, what I was saying is that um, it, I don't know. I, I agree. I and that's that's sort of where I wanted to take it, which is that Pete, Pete ha- at the beginning of the season, I thought Pete was doing great. I thought Pete liked L.A. and he took to it very well. I loved him with the sweater around his neck. I thought his relationship with Bonnie was like a good thing that they seemed to both enjoy each other, right? Like, and I felt like Pete was the closest it seemed to really making a kind of change that could, you know, when people are talking about the Shangri-La, right? If this is this the season is a series of people's attempts to get to Shangri-La to get to this uh, state of perfection that Pete at the beginning of the season is already really close. And and he he does nothing but move away from it for the entire course of the season. So that at the end, when he's sitting in that room, being like, "I have twice as much money than Joan," like that's not what you cared about, right? Like that's not you know the pastrami sandwich with the coleslaw on the sandwich, right? Like that's well, what happened to that? And what happened to like sitting in the empty house, right? Like these moments where Pete seemed like legitimately excited about something that was meaningful to him, uh, and now it's like this thing that's replaced it. You know, he's he's kind of come back to New York. He's sort of come back and like sort of swept up Don Draper and how he thinks John Don Draper, which is of course how he felt about Don Draper when he was like an entry level employee or whatever, right? Like, which he's not changed his opinion at all, or at least he's like sort of put rose colored glasses on through cognitive dissonance. I mean, what'd you guys think of Pete Campbell's arc this season? Do you think anything about Pete Campbell? Is he just like, just hate him? People seem to don't lot like Pete Campbell because he's kind of slimy. I, and I, I enjoy Pete Campbell. Um, I wouldn't want to be friends with him, although maybe, I don't know. I He's such a one-liner machine. Um, he's like the secret comic relief weapon. I mean, I'm trying to think of what what really happened this season. He became a member of the Mile High Club, so good for him, I, I suppose. Um, what else did he do? He came back home and he doesn't have a family anymore, which I guess is part of this uh, season-long or half-season-long theme of, um, you know, families falling apart, but then sort of surrogate families being brought together or um, or not. I don't know. Um, yeah, so I don't really know what to say about Pete very much. It didn't seem like he was very vital to this season, but you guys can definitely sway me in hey, John, a do different you direction. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, he... We saw more of this last season, and that he... He represents that element, I guess, that wants to grow the agency, that wants to move it in aggressive and profitable directions, whereas... Up until this past episode, uh, forces like Roger Sterling and, to an extent, Burt Cooper were happy just to coast. Like, Roger Sterling was happy to have an ad agency because, you know, that was sort of the family business. It was something he could do sort of on autopilot, like go to meetings, have a few cocktails, shake hands, tell a few dirty jokes, take someone to a whorehouse, and then, hey, the deal is signed. Like, that's, that's easy for him. So Roger Sterling doesn't have to work at closing deals, whereas Pete Campbell does, so he takes it very seriously. We 
we saw some of that in his frustration at being at being locked out of New York conversations while in the Los Angeles office. But yeah, he he had less he had less growth, I'll say, and more just that sort of realization that uh, you know that that he couldn't that he couldn't have it all that he couldn't enjoy the affection of his you know now estranged New York family while still shacking up with this hot young real estate agent in Los Angeles. You can say that he sort of um, backslid in a way because in that scene, uh, that Burger Chef scene, uh, that final tableau was it the final image? Yeah, of the episode, of the episode, of the episode, episode it was episode, right. Yeah. I mean, you could see in that scenario that Don was the dad, Peggy was the mom, and Pete is like the little kid in the fast food restaurant. And he is still, you know, looking up to Don as if he were maybe not a father figure, but someone to emulate. Um, and now that he doesn't have to really be a dad anymore, he can just, you know, cavort around and, you know, go back to what he's always wanted to be, which is just like this single guy living in New York, making a lot of money, being a dick, you know, and now that works for him. Maybe he's becoming who he is. Like, he's not trying to fake it anymore. He's just, yeah. he's accepting his childish dickery. <laughs> yeah. As, I, as I've described before, Pete Campbell's arc throughout the series has very much been trying to be Don Draper and failing. In that, you know, his affairs are never as successful as Don Draper's affairs. His career is never as successful as Don Draper's career. His witticisms aren't as witty. His style isn't as stylish. Uh, and I think, you know, with his his savagely cynical declaration on the plane for Indiana that, uh, marriage is a racket. I think with that, he's sort of, you know, that's that's his, I guess his abandonment of his attempt to you know, to to live the successful post-divorcee lifestyle and just sort of plunge himself into his work. So maybe that's why the money is so important to him, because it's a sign of his professional success and that he's being cashed out as a junior partner of the firm. So, like, all right, I've, I've got something, finally. I've, I've got an accomplishment, even if I don't have family or a girlfriend. No, I thought I thought it was interesting. I mean, I I guess I, I I liked I guess I liked Bonnie a lot more and thought Bonnie was more important than than you guys because I mean the way I, maybe Pete Campbell was failing to be Don Draper in one way because he actually had a successful relationship with an ambitious Los Angeles woman and he didn't seem to feel particularly threatened by it, right? Like they they could be sort of coeval and they could kind of like scheme together and they could kind of they seem to understand each other a little bit like and I thought that was really exciting and novel that we didn't see a lot of relationships that were like that. Uh, that she seemed to legitimately like him. He seemed to legitimately like her. He seemed to be excited that she had the real estate business and was doing all this stuff and was smart and was ambitious. And she seemed excited about these things about him. And it was when he came in contact again and again with the the agency that reinforced his old behaviors, right? And then his big arc is that he goes back to New York to, to work on stuff for the weekend and he abandons her in New York City and she breaks up with them, right? Like that's what happens, right? Is that like, she, she's like, I'm not going to be this person that you can just let go and let make go shopping, right? Like that's, that's not what I am and that's what I'm going to do. And then they're flying back on the plane and she's crying, right? Like she's flying back on the plane in Los Angeles and she's crying, right? And it's like, um, in that sense, it's, it's, uh, 
I guess I'm mourning. Well, well, I see what you mean in terms of this being kind of inevitability for Pete, where it's like, okay, he's going to get pulled back into the gravitational field of Don Draper, even if he's generating most of the field himself at this point, right? He's going to try to seek to be the little kid with Peggy and Don. He's going to try to do all this stuff, but he did have a shot at something and he threw it away, right? And um, and I, I wonder with whether, uh, I mean, I don't think it's as funny, you know, Maybe it seems more sort of like a, a, a loss, um, but I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe, cause also it's like, were they really shacking up? Do they have a meaningful relationship? Um, you know, and of course, of course part of it is he's gravitates back towards his old house and his old family, his old wife. Right. And he, he talks to them. He, he can't let them go. Right. And that's kind of a big problem too. Um, but yeah, I mean, we can, we can leave, I mean, we can leave Pete to go do his thing. You know, that's fine. What about, what about Roger? What about Roger and and uh, and Marigold? Uh, what, what did Marigold? What did Marigold and the Commune? I know we've touched on it a couple times. What did Marigold and the Commune have to do with uh, with the agency? Um, it's like I guess is it a symbolism? Is it right like the the Commune is a surrogate family and the agency is a surrogate family, or is the agency an original family because we love it because of the TV show? Um, like which family should people be with? Do you think it was a good or bad thing for Marigold to go live at the compound? I guess is a question. Um, in terms of your values or the values of the show? I think it, the show um, was saying pretty hard that this was the wrong decision to make. Maybe I'm reading into it. But um, the fact that everyone, including Roger, who is sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, lazy, good for nothing, who spends most of his time, you know, uh, in bed with uh, like a bunch of hippies. Um, when Roger Sterling is uh, looking down on your life choices and saying you're not being responsible enough, it's probably time to you know take a look at your life, right? So, I mean, I don't know how to compare uh, her situation with the agency. I'll have to think about that a little more. Um, but I think this season or this half season has been Roger sort of realizing, um, I don't know, where he is going. Um, in one case, I don't know, he's sort of coming to the conclusion that maybe he should have been a uh, better father. Um, maybe he should be part of his uh, daughter's uh, and grandson's life a little more. Like um, we saw this episode during the moon landing, he was with his family, uh, so that was sort of a, a moment for him, right? Um, and then this episode, he sees uh, you know Cooper died, so he's like the patriarch of this agency now. He's he's the last one here, and I don't think his storyline is over yet. I think that. That's where uh, the next half, half season can go to see, you know, can Sterling step up and, you know, take responsibility at age whatever he is, you know, 50-something, whatever, and finally be something I'd like to see. Yeah, I mean, that if, if the, <clears throat> excuse me, if the season has had any arc for Roger, I think it is exactly that. It's coming to terms with his failures as a patriarch. You know, as 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 I mentioned earlier, he's he's always been sort of coasting in his role at Sterling Cooper slash SCDP slash SCNP, whatever they're whatever they're called now. Uh, and Cooper makes very explicitly clear to him in this episode, like, oh, you you know, you have a great touch with people, you have a great way to work with teams, but you're not a leader. And I think you know, Roger very much takes that to heart. And we see that in the episode where uh, we see that in the very end where he's 
pitching the McCann deal to the other partners, and he invites everyone into his office and says, sit down, I insist. So it's like, it, this isn't just like a stand-up confab in Roger's office over, over vodka martinis. It's like, no, this is a serious meeting. And you can see very much how he steers the conversation in that meeting. Like, you know, as various people raise objections, he chooses to answer Joan's question rather than, uh, rather than Cutler's in order to steer the conversation a certain way. So he's, he's, very much, he's very much taking charge all of a sudden. So if he's, if he's failed as a father to Margaret, perhaps he can succeed as a father to the agency. Yeah, and I guess uh, – oh, speaking of members of, the, of partners at Sterling, uh, Cooper, whatnot, whatnot – uh, Paul Packler on Twitter asks, I never understood why everyone at the company hates Harry Crane. Thoughts? <laughs> uh, because, because he's a little shit. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really all there is to it. I mean, his, his ambition to grow within the company has always been so naked, so transparent, and I think... I think that's what I think that's what these people I think that's what his peers his the other characters despise and I think that's sort of what we're encouraged to despise is that yes you can be ambitious but you have to be stylish about it you can't be just so nakedly tactlessly greedy and clawing uh, so that's part of it for one uh, and I think the other thing is that <clears throat> Crane represents. And this is this is actually a division that happened, you know, like in the real world within the advertising industry, not literally at this time, but it was it it was sort of a gradual continental drift that uh, that the TV show Mad Men is making very punctuated and dramatic for the sake of entertainment. Is this shift from the focus on the value of creative to the value of how it of media, specifically where, or to put it more. To put it more concretely, where the success of an advertising campaign is credited less to a particularly striking image and more to a particular combination of tactics. In other words, like you, we were able to secure ad placement in front of such and such audiences at such and such times of day. Note with Harry Crane, the focus on like you know buying particular ad spots in particular markets around the country, and because we did this, the ad campaign succeeded, as opposed to Oh, we we recreated uh, you know the Pieta or like some you know some piece of religious iconography in this popsicle ad. That's why the ad campaign succeeded. Uh, there's much more crediting of an ad campaign success to the technological and tactical aspects than to the creative and uh, right brain aspects. And this season sort of puts that in, in very in very dramatic uh, in very dramatic form. Harry Crane is sort of the face of that. So it's it's very easy to not like him because he's 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 the face of creative destruction of that Schumpeterian force that is going to take our favorite characters and quietly push them into the dustbin of history. It's such a meta thing, you know. You can basically see Matt Weiner in the background being like, "Screw you, people who want product placement in this show. I am an artiste, and I hate these like the Harry Cranes of this world that I must live in." You know. Yeah, I mean, Harry Crane's job is to. I mean, like when when Chevy comes in in the penultimate episode, you know, there he mentions that they're looking at pilot scripts. That you know, Chevy as a major advertiser and sponsor has you know the right to look at the pilot scripts of certain TV shows. And 
I don't know if they're literally going to say, oh, let's insert Chevy here, but they, they have a much, a much greater role than I think a lot of contemporary viewers uh, understand in saying like, all right, because we're, because we're such a major sponsor, uh, we have, we have say in what entertainment is airing. Even if, even if the people who watch that entertainment take that entertainment very personally, it erupts that entertainment arrived on your screen through a very commercial, almost mercenary process. Yep. And let's also not forget Harry Crane's casual racism, which is just great at parties. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> His, like if, as I mentioned before, if Pete Campbell is trying to be Don Draper and failing, Harry Crane is perhaps trying to be Pete Campbell and failing in that, you know, his attempts at affairs are even more comically mistimed that he shows and that he's out in L.A. and he takes this girl to a party and he happens to pick the party that Don and Megan are throwing. Like, oh, I think it's a hey. Yeah, no, so, uh, yeah, I think who else in the in the menagerie have we have we not addressed? What about uh, what about Betty? Ooh, fat Betty is a distant memory at this point. So we have skinny Betty this season. Uh, yeah, what do you guys think of Betty's arc and her raw milk drinking? That's way out of its time, by the way. You know, just unpasteurized milk. You go yeah. to a farmer's market. Yeah. yeah, she's. Uh, I mean, she's coming. She's coming, and I think the big the big arc for her was uh, in the episode where she has the blow up with uh, with Dick. In that, she. Uh, uh, yeah, she's she's coming too late to the realization that the traditional modes of success for someone in her class and bearing, namely to, you know, be a good housewife and to attract a good husband and to raise a good family, that those modes, A, aren't for her, and B, aren't the only things available to her. But, you know, she doesn't have a lot else to cultivate. There was that conversation very early in the season where she talks with, you know, another housewife about her realtor's office that she, uh, that she works in. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm only in there three days a week, but, you know, the extra money helps, and it gives me a chance to get out of the house, and, you know, I get along better with my husband. And Betty doesn't embrace it, but I I mean, she's a little dismissive, but I don't think she's as dismissive as she would have been in prior seasons, where it would have just been alien to her for a, a housewife and a mother to work outside the home. Yeah. And of course, we have the best line of the season, if you ask me, where she says that she's intelligent because she speaks Italian, right? Yeah, I'm not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, it, on the one hand, it's such a Betty thing to say because it's just so childish and ridiculous. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's really not a Betty thing to say because it does seem like sort of proto-feminist in a way. Like, I can have my own, you know, views on things. I don't have to listen to my husband. Like... I am as smart as you, and maybe I could go out and be a politician if I tried. You know, I kind of wonder if this is the way she's moving, and that would be, like, the ultimate irony if at the very end of Mad Men, like, she is the one, I don't know, like, joining the women's rights movement or something. I don't know if they would be that on the nose, but it would be hilarious to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh... <laughs> I love... There was one theory I read online, or one... Conjecture that one of the directions that Mad Men could go is they could do a time skip, and they could show in the last half season things that happen increasingly in the future, right? Like we could look at like the '70s and the '80s and the '90s and today, right? Like, uh, um, and it would be funny to see Betty, like you know, speaking to large crowds of Republicans or what have you. 
uh, as a kind of like uh, a silver hair, like a Michelle Bachman analog or something like that. Well, maybe not quite like that, but um, but yeah, I feel like we've we. I mean, there's other characters. We is there another character you really want to talk about? Because we could also just sort of talk about the themes and ideas of of the show. Uh, or the last episode, right? The last episode specifically, since it's the freshest in our minds. Well, I, I would like to talk about where the last episode, particularly the direction of the agency, positions, positions the, where that positions the characters for the, the last half season, for the last couple episodes, in that for the first time, really since the show began, the agency isn't in control of its own destiny. As you mentioned at the beginning, Pete, you know, the whole the the infamous you know Friday night mutiny uh, at the end of season three was the effort of Sterling Cooper to remain independent of McCann, and now here they are falling back into McCann's arms. So, you know they've been they've been an independent agency, they've been an independent shop since the beginning, and now they're now they're part of McCann, which to put it into perspective is one of is one of the is like one of the hugest media agencies in the world at this point. I mean, it, I think it's sort of implied in that this one guy who Roger talks to has the ability to sign off on buying the entire SCMP uh, agency, like, by himself. It's like it's like just a purchase they can pick up without really having to debate over it too much. Uh, but, you know, in, in real world, and this is probably, this may already be obvious to, to folks who watch the show, it might not be, McCann is an actual real company. Like, they're not a fictitious company created for the sake of the show. McCann Erickson is an actual ad agency, and it was around, uh, it was around the, the early to mid-60s that they were forming what's, uh, what's now known as, I want to get this right, uh, the Interpublic Group, IPG, which still exists today and is one, of, is one of the four largest advertising holding companies, one of the largest media buying companies in the world. The big... Uh, the big four, as they typically call them, are IPG, Omnicom, WPP, and Publicis. So pretty much, like, if you have a friend who works in marketing and they've worked for, like, any of a number of ad agencies in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Boston, they've worked for a company that rolls up to one of those four, I can almost guarantee it. So McCann is, like, this global behemoth of an ad company. They have they have fingertips in media buying you know, all across the world, and Sterling Cooper is now part of them. They're now a very small fish in a very big pond. So what is that going to mean for people like Don Draper, who want to do envelope-pushing creative work? What is it going to mean for Joan, who's scrambled so hard to become a partner and, like, a leading force in this firm and is now, you know, I, I don't think she's going to have as important of a role in the larger, larger McCann empire. What does it mean for, you know, Roger Sterling now that he's brokered this deal and, and will no longer quite be a patriarch? What's, what's the next move? Shana, do you have any uh, great predictions as to what happens? Uh, uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I really, I, I don't. Um, it would be interesting if the last... Um, the end game for Mad Men was the uh, dissolution of Sterling Cooper, and that was it. Like it, it's gone forever. Maybe that's where they're going. I really, I, I've been kind of bad at predicting this show. Um, although I do want to give myself a pat on the back for saying that last season uh, Don was finally going to see the error of his ways. So that that was one thing that I predicted correctly. But that that was basically yeah, the one one for me, a billion for Weiner. So I, I don't want to make speculations uh, about that. 
but uh, what do you think, uh, Pete? Uh, I think it starts with Ken Cosgrove, right? <laughs> the guy who did nothing this season uh, other than have an eye patch and be upset about things. Rah! Uh, or is it like this? Rah! I think it's like, I think he was, it's his right eye, right? Or no? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's right. Because uh, we're doing this in Google Hangouts and Google mirrors your uh, yes. <laughs> your feed. So yeah, it's even though I this looks incorrect to me, it looks correct to you. Um, well, so so people can jump, right? Like so, people inside Sterling could potentially move to other parts of McCann is one option, right? Like uh, maybe. So I feel like Ken Cosgrove has been his situation is kind of settled, but his situation was always a little bit precarious in that like he's been publishing science fiction stories under a pseudonym, right? Like I mean, that's not really a story anymore, but that's enough that could have gotten him in trouble with a larger employer if they found out that he was doing stuff that they didn't approve of, right, on, off the books on the side. Uh, and also, he doesn't seem to be particularly well-valued, and he's also sort of a good account man that could go anywhere. And he and, and Peggy have a long-standing relationship of kind of talking to each other about their professional moves, right? So, like, I could see a move by Ken Cosgrove either into the McCann organization or, like, to a competitor because of the McCann acquisition as something that shows... Uh, that sort of uh, it provokes something because it shows why someone else won't also do it, right? Maybe like so. Maybe like Ken moves into McCann. It's like, hey, Peggy, you should come with me and work in this department rather than at Sterling. Sterling is small potatoes. This is where we're doing the really interesting stuff. And then she could be like, no. And then that could turn out to have like dire consequences, right? Because then maybe Harry Crane moves and takes the computer, right? And like, uh, yeah. you know, like that stuff. Maybe, uh, maybe Bob Benson. Well, Bob Benson's at Buick now, right? So he doesn't work yes. for any agency. Um, he just works for he just works works hard. Yeah, for he, he works for Buick's in-house shop, I think, is implied uh, at this point, or or he will within a, within a month or so. Uh, so the one the one interesting thing that I think the change in agency has the potential to alter, and this might be something you guys can talk about, is I don't think I don't think that McCann will or would have given people like Peggy Olson, people like uh, people like uh, Ginsburg, uh, people like Joan even, the same chance that Sterling Cooper was willing to give them. Uh, I don't think those opportunities will be available to them in McCann. And in one sense, it's it's fortunate that they've sort of reached these peaks or near peaks in their professional development, so they don't need to scramble as much. But they still have further to climb, and there's a possibility they might backslide as well. So, what does this mean for what does this mean for those characters? What does this mean for creative, ambitious characters in general? Yeah. Um... What does it mean for creative, ambitious characters? I, I've worked for departments like that, yeah, where it's sort of like the misfits, right? And you feel like um, a, a, a company that was really was able to recruit really competitive people would recruit different people than this to do these jobs and give them different opportunities. Uh, I mean, I feel like the idea of Don Draper being stifled creatively, um, that doesn't seem to be his MO right now. Of course, we could pick up next season and he could care about entirely different things than he did this season. But it feels like it, for this to really be the end of the show, there'd have to be something uh, really fundamentally different or more threatening, I guess, to him other than sort of like, well, we won't use your ad pitch or you're not – because we already tried to say, well, you're not allowed to pitch anymore and he's kind of like worn out the idea of pitching. Uh, he kind of – the only pitch he really does is the one to Ted – Right to get him to to stay at the agency that he hates. Um, so what is it that they could actually threaten? I can see it with Joan, totally with Joan. Joan, I think, will have a huge problem at the new agency because she won't be respected to the degree that she's respected at, at Sterling Cooper. Um, 
and I think that Roger will probably like not be able to control things as well as he would like to, and uh, and we'll have to have him give a tearful apology, perhaps from a hospital bed after another heart attack, right, or something along those lines. Um, but what could you really threaten Don with at this point, right? Like, yeah, I mean, what? I think I'm on the same page as you, Pete, because he hasn't been like, oh, I am the creative genius. You must let me do whatever I want. He said this episode and last episode, maybe even another episode, that all he wants to do is just do the work. It doesn't matter if he's just doing coupons or just tags that don't require... I mean, they require some thought, but it's not like he's doing Pieta, as you said before. Um, He's just, like, putting his nose to the grindstone. He's like, I'm just... This is what I need to do to be the person I am. Everything else is extraneous. But at the same time, what he's been doing this uh, at the end of the season is really um, becoming the mentor for Peggy that she has always looked to him uh, to be. And now he's really, like, owning that role. So maybe what happens in the second half of this season is not that he's threatened, but that threatened throughout the show. He respects her as much as she deserves to be respected. Um, and maybe the end game of the show, which would be really nice and probably too nice for the show, so I'm not going to predict it, but is that um, Sterling Cooper is dead and what remains is uh, Dra- uh, Draper Olsen, right? Nice. <laughs> I... Uh... That that would that would be that would be a very nice ending to envision. Uh, I think it's a little too nice for a. For yeah, a wait, wait, too show. nice. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think I think the more likely, and even this may be slightly too positive, is there will be some conjunction of circumstances that enables Dom to essentially fall on his sword, so that Peggy can either keep her job or advance in her role. And that the heroic thing would be for for Don to do that, for him to recognize that, you know, the hour of the great American male is is passing, is fading. Uh, this is the this is the dawn of the era for you know young, ambitious, creative people who are possibly women or possibly not white. Who knows? So, and for Don to recognize that and to somehow symbolically or allegorically. Uh, step aside and you know diminish and and return to the West. I, I think I think Don Draper will return from Korea, having not actually been dead, and will assume the identity of Dick Whitman, and, and, and then there will be a speedboat chase as they try to. I'm going to take your mad man. But no, it's not what's going to happen. No, we we find that we find that uh, Don Draper as Dick Whitman has been running a successful chain of. Uh, of uh, Midwestern Pennsylvania brothels uh, that he that he inherited, you know, through a, a little-known codicil in the wills. Like, no, you inherit this cat house and all the other cat houses. So he you know, runs a... I, I don't know where I'm going with this. I mean, it also could have something to do with Sally, right? That's the other thing, is that Sally yeah. is, is a big unresolved thing. There's been a sense for the whole show that Sally is kind of at the center of the story, that she's mm-hmm. kind of a protagonistic character. Something could happen to her. And really, while there's a bunch of interesting things that happened to her this season, not really a lot that was uh, decisive happened to Sally. Um, not like last season. True. So, um, so there should be something that could happen to her, right? Like, uh, maybe not something bad. Or, I mean, she has to go to school or whatever. Or does it end with with Sally Draper, like, at her first day at work at an advertising agency? Is that what it is? Or, um, uh, no. or does it end with her getting hit by a sniper? 
Oh. <laughs> I, I, that's my prediction. My prediction for all shows is hail of enemy gunfire. Sniper takes <laughs> out the character you love the most. <laughs> no, that was my prediction for How I Met Your Mother, and it was very close to accurate. Yes, so. very close. Well, yeah, I mean, um, with Sally, I think there is a little tiny piece of uh, pieces of evidence here that maybe she's letting her father back into her life just a little bit, even though she's still pretty nasty around Betty. Um, this uh, past episode, she was parroting what the jock kid was saying about, like, oh, we shouldn't send people up into space. It's a waste of money, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, she's on the phone with Don, and Don just says, like, one sentence, like, don't be so cynical. And she sort of takes it to heart a little bit, and at the end of the episode, um, sort of subverting expectations, she doesn't go for the jock kid, she goes for the, the nerdy kid, and is more idealistic, like, very suddenly, like, looking up into this space at the stars and being like, oh, like, we can connect um, here on Earth without watching TV, and there's something to look forward to, and she, weirdly enough, got that from her dad, and you wouldn't have expected that in the past. So, yeah. maybe there is a positive ending for Sally Draper, even though people have been predicting since day one of season one that she was going to end up, you know, on the streets with, like, needles coming out of her arm and all that. So, I, I have uh, a little, little tiny bit of hope for Sally. Yeah, I think I think Don Draper at his core isn't really a cynical character in that. I mean, it's it's tough to really paint this as idealism, but he believes in the power of advertising to patch over the holes in the human spirit, which means that he believes there are elements of the human spirit worth saving. Whereas, I mean, that's that's at the core of him, and it often takes a lot to really unearth that in the course of a season. But I think in this particular season, to the extent that Sally is listening to her father rather than her mother, she is rediscovering that that idealism in herself, which the late 60s and the counterculture are all about, that belief in the capacity of society to remake itself in a positive and meaningful way. Uh, whereas her mother, I think, is going through a bit more of a cynical arc in that she's realizing what her new husband, Henry Francis, values her as and how uh, and how little how little use that is and, and her sort of abandonment of her responsibilities as a mother, her responsibilities as a wife is sort of a cynical discarding of that without necessarily having a new ideal to embrace. So to the extent that it's sort of, a, you know, it's sort of, you know, do you side with, with Ben Kenobi or, or Darth Vader? Do you, uh, you know, do you side with the idealist who's in decline is going to be cut down by a laser sword at the end of this, or do you side with the, the dark and mighty power of, of Betty Draper? Well, speaking of Ben, we have one last tweet uh, from our own Ben Adams, Ben Adams, at Ben Adams Navy at Twitter, and Ben asks, uh, what do we make of Peggy's anti-TV pitch coming right after the one day that watching TV was the most interesting thing to do? <laughs> and I'll add, and also coming during a television show that you must be watching in order to be hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is true. I mean, it it, it speaks to, uh, and I mean, as I've as I mentioned this before, and I and now I feel almost compelled to to Google the specific uh, uh, speech. So Shana, uh, Shana, feel this first. I need to look something up. Sorry. 
Um, well, I think it. you have to look at who Peggy was talking to when she was making that speech, which was a bunch of old white guys who were sitting at the table. And when she's like, yeah, you have these young kids and they're just... You know, they're eating uh, dinner while watching TV and running out of the house, and they're all nodding like, "Yeah, my like these kids these days, they won't get off my lawn or whatever." So, I mean, I think she is pitching it directly toward them, but she did start the pitch by, uh, you know, making reference to the fact that they were all watching the moon landing the night before. So, uh, I mean, the show, this show has always been about the power of television to a certain extent, um, whether it's television advertisements or in the background of, you know, many, many scenes we are watching television um, or watching characters watch television and having the television sort of comment um, obliquely on what's happening in the episode. And, you know, it, it comes down... Actually, I don't know if it comes down on either side. It... it uh, the show is sort of skeptical of television and sort of, you know, it is a television show, so what are you going to yeah. do? I mean, you're, you're, um, you're I'm going to throw it back to you, John. <laughs> you're allowed to be skeptical of your, your genre and your art form while being a part of it. That's, that's the best that meta is. That's the best, that, uh, best elements of meta. So season three finale, Shut the Door, Have a Seat, Don tearfully trying to recruit Peggy back to back to his side and get her to come along on their crazy adventure makes the pitch for her as like why advertising is important to him. And he says, there are people out there who buy things, people like you and me. Then something happened, something terrible, and the way that they saw themselves is gone. And nobody understands that, but you do, he says to Peggy, and that's very valuable. So... And again, this this touches back on things that came from season one, and I I feel like I say this every time I talk about Mad Men, but and I t I said it in this episode uh, in this hangout, Don Draper sees advertising as a as a way to <clears throat> fill in the hole in his spirit, and thereby fill in the holes in other people's spirits. Uh, and what the show has explored over the past seven seasons is that yes, a lot of other people are broken in the same way Don Draper is; they are just not admitting it to themselves. No, advertising is not going to fill the holes in their spirit. No, advertising might not actually be filling the hole in Don Draper's spirit either. Uh, but everyone subconsciously sort of feels this way, or at least recognizes it. So when Peggy is in front of these people saying, you know, there is a lack in our lives, there is something we're missing, and the only thing that's going to solve it is your quick-serve restaurant, and it's value-friendly, you know, hamburgers, even if that's not necessarily true, they're willing to believe that because of the immense lack that they feel in their lives. So because that lack is so deep and so, like, soul-touching, it's possible to, sim to simultaneously believe two things like, yes, it was great that we, we could all watch that thing on television, and, oh, my God, it's terrible that we have to rely on television to watch this. It's possible to hold those two simultaneous contradictory ideas in one's mind at the same time if you're coming from the viewpoint of, I used to have something great, I don't have it anymore, what the hell happened, how do I get it back? And the answer is burgers. <laughs> you can see that tension um, in that final sequence with uh, Cooper singing the, 
the best things in life are free because it is a, another uh, mode of entertainment. It's not television, but it is entertaining. It is like so non-naturalistic, you know, it really mm -hmm. kind of takes you out of the episode. Um, and he's talking about uh, the best things in life being free on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's um, performing a, a work of art from the theater, which you would have to pay for, or it would be on TV, you watch TV, and that's free, but you need to buy the TV, um, and there are going to be advertisements in, you know, in between the songs, maybe. So it's it's all a, a big mix, right? Like, uh, yeah. entertainment is good, but it's also sort of weird. Um, you see in Don's face when he's watching that scene, like, this confusion and sort of fear and sort of a little bit of sadness, even, like, he seems to be tearing up a little bit. But then a little, I don't know, maybe I'm reading into this too, but, like, a little happiness. It's just, like, all these weird emotions mixed into each other. And I think yeah. that really connects to what you were saying, John. Yeah, he's realizing that the best things in life are, you know, things he can't, you know, reach out and buy. They're things like, you know, his personal connection with Burt Cooper, who's now lost to him forever, his relationship with his family, which is now lost to him. Like, the best things in life are free in that they can't be bought by money. And having just completed this, this, this big sale, this big deal with McCann, he's no closer to any of them. So I think, and... Of course, this is something he's probably been told more than once, but really only gets it when someone's, like, doing a song and dance routine to get it to him. Like, hey, you'll listen to this if it's in the form of catchy entertainment, won't you, you, you know, you dense schmuck? And it's like, oh, it's a jingle. Now I get it. Uh... And now you get it. And now we get it. And now we give it back to you. Uh, conversations in your hands, folks. Come to our site and comment in the comment threads. Talk to us on Twitter. Talk to us on our Facebook page. Uh, tweet us on Instagram or what have you. You know, hashtag, hashtag blessed, hashtag madmen, all that other stuff. At any rate, uh, we'd love to hear more about Mad Men in our forums. The conversation will be ongoing. But next week in this time slot and on time, 9 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Hong Kong time, uh, 6 p.m. Pacific, we will be back to Game of Thrones recapping as the uh, Game of Thrones season marches on. So I would just like to thank Shane and John. Shane and John, thank you so much for your work today. Thank really you. Happy here. Yeah, especially Graham. John, we haven't had on the recaps recently, and I haven't even mm. podcasted him with him much lately, so it's great to see him. John's getting ready for some big days, uh, which I will leave to him to talk about when he wants to, but uh, they're certainly exciting. What? <laughs> yeah, or make funny faces. That works, too. All right. He's not giving you any more. Now, the first one, is, the first taste is free, but the rest of the funny faces will cost you. Anyway, what remains is to find all this stuff, uh, TFT podcast, regular podcast, articles, videos, uh, recaps. Eurovision was great this year. Everything was great this year. Find it all on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Someone soft shoe us off, please. The moon belongs to everyone. The best things in life are free.